0: Welcome to this edition of Toby Haddox Who's Round, which is part two of my epic interview with Daryl Blake, the director of The Stones of Blood, and, as you'll hear, so much more. But we're talking about a way of making television that... Mm. Isn't really done anymore, apart from soap operas. So you talk about a fantasy studio, which wouldn't wouldn't happen now. If you wanted a fantasy sequence, it would be special effects, or oh, it would be well, on location, yes, or whatever. Yes. Uh, and it's almost as if an audience now. Well, has I, to be I, sold. I Perhaps it was wrong to use the word fantasy. I mean, what I wanted was
1: selective reality, which is w- which is what I used to do as a designer. Mm. You know, I mean, a sitcom that I met my wife on, uh, World of His Own with Roy Kinnear. We had because it was, they had a realistic home. And then he went off to, He sort of went off into a daze or a sleep and he dreamed these sequences where he was the emperor of Austria or, or you know, uh, Shakespeare or the man who lived, man who lived next door to Mozart or, or something, you know? So uh, the dreams were still real, mm. but it was just selective reality in a white void or, or something, you know, which was my trick at the time. And that's what we did with the roof play, sort of. But um, so I sh- perhaps I shouldn't have word- used the word fantasy, because television, television camera is very. It, it, it rejects fantasy. You know, I mean, you, you, if it's a chair, you've got to put a chair there. You can't have a
0: fantasy chair. You mm. know? <laughs>
1: It's got to support a bum, you <laughs> know. Yeah. So it's got to be a real chair.
0: And and videotape is very clean, isn't it? It doesn't hide artifice particularly well. No. So in a way, for for me, that that television of those is interesting though because it doesn't say we are necessarily showing you what is real. Mm. It says this is what we're giving a, a version of, like, yes. it, like the theatre does. But it, it exactly. never tries to convince you it's being real. No. It's and, and now I get very frustrated with modern audiences, certainly when you have prog- programmes where people look back at old television and they mm. go, oh, well, that doesn't look very realistic. And, and I go, well, when was it that television said it had to be real? You know you're watching something that's artificial. Yes, but, uh,
1: but, but if you're doing Dixon of Dark Green or, or, or EastEnders or something, then then you are trying to, to convince them that, sure. that, that the interiors are real. That's what I was meant meant really mm. I mean we weren't doing that but we were doing some selective thing, yeah. thing of that you know which, which you could see all around it was was either black or, or white or whatever you know I said the rule of thumb to our dear Austin Spriggs was you know if it's an exterior then it's in a white you know if it's an interior then it's in blacks you know I mean, that's how we divided the studio into two you know anyway um, the last 20 years of my career of course were in the soaps
0: yeah So that's another world entirely, you know, from what we've been talking about so far. Well, the the crossroads with Noel Gordon and Ronald Allen and uh, all all the the icons. I was out of work.
1: um, And my ex-agent rang up and said, um, would I go to Crossroads? Uh, And I said, how dare you, and put the phone down. And... um, this was nineteen Oh, this was nineteen seventy six when I when I did Rupert on the stage, that's right. Uh, and I realised as I walked away from the phone that I hadn't earned any money since February, and it was now September or something. And um and done Rupert on the stage in the in the um, uh in the summer. Oh god it was hot. Um, so I I rang him back and said, Okay, and before I knew where I was, I was sitting in front of Jack Barton in Birmingham. Uh, and we got on like a house on fire. And the scenery didn't wobble when I did it, and the, the actors knew their lines. And, 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 but it was, a, it, was a, it was a culture shock, I have to say. Because it took take me some time, because my first job back in the 60s was the Saturday evening, the official first job was, was the Saturday evening satire bit, when we were live and, and nothing could be retaken or anything and I did other live things including the first ever global television programme Our World which is now puts me into the Science Museum (laughs) Um, etc etc it was all live stuff so when I came to drama in 1970 that was a culture shock because we could actually stop the the tape and do a retake or go again on the whole scene or whatever but it was still multi-camera and you still had a Limited amount of time, an hour and a half to record 50 minutes, I think it was. Um, But if you planned yourself properly, then then you know you could you could get it done in the time. But still, top stop the tape and do retext and things. When I got to Crossroads, um, it was different again because they had a system called Editech, which I had I had met briefly in the BBC, and it had been discarded because if you if you stop the tape you then put an electronic dot on where you wanted to cut out of the previous take and the recording machine took up with what you were offering then in the studio live so you 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 finished the day with edited programs that you didn't go into an edit ever um so that 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 to be got used to and i found it very difficult to stop the tape (laughs) so i had a little rule of thumb on on um, crossroads which was i allowed a a slight fluff or somebody dropping a prop and picking it up but the third thing i stopped the tape um if if there was a you know a fluff or not a dry because they never dried that i can remember um but a little thing which was so obvious that it was ridiculous, you know. And I stopped the tape and we we re- retook. But the problem was, oh yes. Um, depending where you were, you you had to go back to the beginning of part. You had to start back again at part top of part two, say. Anyway, um, and there were other, other other sort of limitations too. The the PA and they were marvelous girls. Um, Particularly one I can't remember her name now. Um, would start the closing music wherever you were in the show. <laughs> she would start the closing music when the a minute and a half before the, the allotted time of the program. I think there were only seventeen minutes anyway at, 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 at that stage. Um, so that would the music would fade up under whatever you were doing, and then you'd go into the to the. Um, into the credit sequence with, 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 with which the they were yeah. doing, they were doing this business, which was the cameras used to do, not, it wasn't the, a, a device, it was the cameras. And um, uh, so anyway, I got used to that, and, and and since I'd spent my entire life in the, but for the sort of filmmaking bit in, in the arts features, since I'd spent my entire life in a television studio, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult for me to put that one on um and so jack of course asked asked me back and back and back and back uh because he had three directors and he had two staff directors uh and a freelance slot so the 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 actors one actress told me that we get directed every third week (laughs) (laughs) uh sue hanson and um I I quite enjoyed it. I mean it was, you know, it's fast turnaround. Oh. When I was first a messenger boy in Lime Grove all those years ago, 1953. The bright boy in the drama department was one Dennis Vance, and oh, he yes. had discovered The Close-up. And um and the studios in Lime Grove also included the first six houses. Uh, uh, sort of beside the North Block Um, the first six houses were were offices and you went in the the front doors were all bolted and barred and and you went in from behind over the concreted over back gardens uh, as a messenger boy and on Dennis Vance's door was a a, a big photograph of a close-up of two eyes Uh, Dennis Vance had discovered the close-up and I have to tell you that his PA, sweet blonde lady behind the typewriter, was Joyce Bullen, who later on gave me the chance to direct when she was producing women's programmes and and those two fashion play, fashion shows which which um, I mentioned earlier. Um, so this is all circles. I mean, uh, having mm. gone in as a child in t- into television, all these people remain friends or, or contacts or You know, in touch. I mean, as you know, you do a show, you do a film, you do a play, whatever, you are very close to all the people that you're working with, and you don't see them for five years or whatever. But when you see them again,
0: most of the time, you're back as though you'd never been apart. Mm -hmm. You know, it is is extraordinary. And I wondered, from jumping from the different skill sets that you did, um, when you became a director, was there anybody that you worked as? As a designer, that you would that you would say either consciously or not that whose work as a director influenced you as in that's how you do it or that's how you don't do it even. Uh, that was one of the things I usually say was that, that w- during my de- time as a designer,
1: I sat behind good, bad, and indifferent directors, um, and they taught me how to behave or not behave. I mean that 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 was my training ground. I didn't. I never went on the course. I acted in a few. And <laughs> a few exercises for, for directors, including Reed. Um but I never did the course um, myself. So they—that was my trick. And somebody I learnt a lot from was was Mike uh, mm-hmm. who was very very serious about the business of directing. And um, I, I, he was the son of a bishop, I think. And then there was a, there was a certain sort of. Um, looking down... you quite tall and elegant and sort of looked down from the pulpit at you, rather. Um, uh, well, I was a kid at the time, obviously. Um, but, the, but the way he spoke to people and the way he directed the actors and the way he, he used the studio and so forth, I mean, that, that was terribly influential to me, I think.
0: And I'm interested in... Because As- we look back on stuff and it's very easy to impose over these of the most... And you seem to have been there... When certain things that we look at as being important moments, I guess, probably weren't too. So, for example, when you're working on the comedies with Ned Sherin mm. we now know that these people, the John Birds and the Eleanor Bronze and all of these people, were at the cusp of a movement to transform what comedy was, and mm. deference was out, and um, satire was in. But they were
1: also very good actors mm-hmm. and survived
0: afterwards. Mm. Uh, when, that, when the
1: wave went away, I mean, they, they were left working, you know.
0: But was there a feeling that you were doing something subversive? I mean, was that the, the, the intent? Oh, sort of, you know, in a minor sort of undergraduate way. Not that there's anything I'd ever done.
1: I'd never been an undergraduate, but, I mean, that's that's how it was classed, wasn't it? I mean, the, those I don't know how old you are, but, I mean, <laughs> it was um, was thought to be undergraduate humour, you know, yeah. this, this, by the powers that be and things. But, I mean, it took the nation, certainly, by, by storm, you know, as as... Quader Mass had done in a different way um, so but yes it was a joy to work with with John and Eleanor and, and John Wells and John Fortune uh, John John, For- John Bird was a, was a brilliant actor Eleanor was a joy uh, John Wells was a nightmare because he was a true amateur uh, I mean alright he'd written the, the, written the sketch but he would then ad lib on the air and if you're working to a camera script and you're waiting to cue film, and uh, goodness knows <laughs> what, well, on a live show, John, he um, was, was a bit of a nightmare, you know. I mean, it, it, I remember a very elaborate sketch when he was it was a um, the Pope or something in medieval Rome, you know, and somebody else was. I think John Bird was in the sketch with him. I can't remember, but he suddenly went off at a tangent about Concord or something, you know. I mean, I, think, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of things like that were, were, were happening, but no, no, but they were, they were a joy to work with. Um, but Ned went off to the movies after BBC3, um, which was my first as a um, direct official director. But the BBC decided to go around again in the following autumn without him. And they put a man called Hugh Burnett in charge. Hugh, I'd worked with as a designer. when <coughs> he was, uh, he produced Face to Face. Do you remember? Yes. You remember oh, goodness, a whole yes. series of Face to Face. And documentaries about it. He had Mr. Smoke cheroots I remember. And um, had a very, very black humour. And, and did wonderful cartoons and things. Very elegant sort of um, sense of humour he had. Uh, Never, ever, ever had produced anything of a performed show before. Didn't know anything about commissioning writers. It was an absolute nightmare. And on a Tuesday, when he should have been commissioning writers for the following weekend, he was holding post-mortems on what went wrong, wrong on the previous show. Why was that teapot on the table? You know. What? And so... We were on the air, of course, we were live, you know, every week, and it was absolute disaster. And um, this is the late show. And um, so what happened was that uh, I was living in Anne's flat in, in Hampstead at that time, because we'd, we'd married the previous year. And um, so John Bird, Eleanor, uh, John Wells, presumably, used to come to my flat, and we'd work out what the hell we were going to do that week, and then we'd go in and tell him. And he'd say, oh, 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 right. And was uh, we got up to Christmas and, and John Byrne and I said, we can't let this go on. So we went up to um, Michael, who was then controller Channel One, and, and we said, take us off, take us off. He said, oh, no, 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 no. What's the problem? So we told him. I mean, I, I felt awful, you know, go stabbing the producer in the back. But um, it had to be done. And... Uh, so he said oh I'll give you somebody else so I don't know what happened my uh, Hugh was removed and we were given Jack Gold jolly Jack Gold uh, which was a joy but he'd never worked in a studio in his life and uh, (laughs) you know and I had a wonderful relationship with a, a, a floor manager who you may have heard of actually called Mum thin little lady about this high stick like person but wonderful brilliant at the job and she was usually doing well she did live shows you know she did party politicals and she did panorama and she was great great friends with richard dimbleby and and you know she has told wonderful stories of, of things that you know going into the gents and dragging hugh gateskill out because they were on the air live in 30 seconds you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was doing this is a, a divergence but she had a wonderful, wonderful um, time in, in, in Lime Grove and the, and the studios generally. Everybody loved her. But, but, um, Dimbleby called her mum. Everybody called her mum. Um, and she was doing a live Tomorrow's World. And they are doing an item on the food for Tomorrow's World. And they were going to have a, um, uh, an English Sunday lunch and a pill. And a Chinese meal and a pill. You know, and different kinds of cuisine. And what it actually, what actually you needed out of it was was a pill, you know, that sure. much. And um, and she got into the studio. At, I don't know, ten minutes before live show, and the Sunday lunch had come out from the canteen. It was, it was a, you know, and um, but the Chinese meal wasn't there. So she went down to reception, which is four flights down in the lift, obviously. Went to reception, and there was a man with a with a you know suitable looking man with. with um, and she said, "Are you the food for tomorrow as well?" She said, "No, I'm the Prime Minister of Singapore." <laughs> <laughs> Lee Kuan Yew just died. <laughs> <laughs> she had wonderful stories like that, you know. Anyway, she was the floor manager of this, this the, the late show for me, and we had the, we had a, we had for years, you know, a wonderful sort of relationship. Uh, and she wouldn't hold back on saying something if she thought it was right to say, you know. I remember Jack saying you shouldn't let her talk to you like that, you know. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right, don't worry, don't worry. And he was he was—he he was totally lost in the world of the, the studio, you know. But he had a reasonable eye on editing in terms of, you know, that sketch is too long or, you know, can we take that bit out or whatever. He was, he was quite helpful in that way. But it, it was me on my own, you know. And Barry Humphreys was, was, was part of the deal. Well, he was part of the cast. And uh, he, did a, he wrote a song every week. And I remember he was at his, he was at his sort of you know, peak of, of everything. Um, I, I, most of the time a joy to work with, but, but uh, every now and then something bizarre would happen. And he knew he had to get to me on a Friday morning or he wasn't in the show. And I used to wake up after a bender somewhere and the phone would ring on the desk as I was doing the camera script. And, uh, hello, Daryl. I don't know where I am, but they're lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do you send a car? So I said, yeah, OK, well, i give the phone to somebody who knows where they are. <laughs> so they, they'd give me an address and I'd send a car. And on bits of paper... Would be his song or his, his sketch or whatever you know several bits of paper envelopes and could as what, so it would be in the camera script, and he'd come in and do it on the next day on the Saturday live, but you know I mean if he knew that he had to get to me on
0: Friday morning, otherwise he, he wouldn't be in the show seat of the pants yes well of course you had a show that was was it's back to a show we've talked about that was not broadcast, which was the final episode of Doomwatch Watch uh, sex yes, and violence. It, uh, uh,
1: well, one of the things that, about it um, was that it was written by Stuart Douglas. Mm. And he had written the best episode of the, of the regiment that I had done. So I knew him and I, and I knew it was a good script and, I, and it was an incredible subject, etc. But it was happening, well, we did it, at the same time as the Lord Longford Commission. It was a parody of the Lord Longford Commission. Yes, you know. Which had Cliff Richard and uh, Mary Whitehouse. and uh,
0: Yes. So and you've got Chris Chattel as Cliff Richard, essentially, yes. haven't you? Yeah. And yeah. Donald yeah. Eccles and Bernard yeah. Horsfall. And, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: and, oh, God. She was in Coronation Street at the beginning with Anne, playing Mary Whitehouse. Yeah, uh, Noel, Dyson. No, Noel, Noel, Noel Dyson. No, Noel Dyson. It's Noel, got Noel it, Dyson. Got it, got yeah. it, got it, got it. Yes, he played um, Bill Roach's mother. And um, so I knew her slightly. And the two little children at the very top of the show are, are my twins uh. <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to I rang around um, Wardour Street and try, try to get a porno film or part of a porno film and they were dis, the distributors were disgusted that I wanted to put that on BBC One how dare you <laughs> not supply anything to BBC One this is absolutely not on so I had to, I had to shoot my own <laughs> In in a, in a to, you know sort of mini bus of extras into into a hotel near London Airport and shoot this ridiculous, not very good porno film, and um, uh, and but the the execution, the violence bit, mm. was something I had seen on Twenty Four Hours. Uh, it was you know a, a man being shot, uh, in Africa somewhere, and that apparently was was the thing that took us off mm. really. Yeah. Even though it had already been transmitted, Hugh uh, was always hated. Um, the confusion of drama and reality, he said. You do, the audience don't know where they are if you do. You know, you put real footage into a drama, or or try and kid them that you know what the drama you're doing is is real stuff. Uh, it, it, it's confusing to the audience, and it shouldn't it shouldn't happen. Plus the fact that we had this, obviously, cod, you know, Mary Whitehouse type yes. <laughs> situation as the basis for the piece. But, but anyway, the point was, after that contract finished, and I'd done three or three, I suppose, in that series, um, uh, we went on a holiday, and it was my first holiday for two years or more. Uh, we had a friend's house in the south of France, and that was not as grand as it sounds. Um... Uh, and we were away for a month and when I came back it was the first time in my life that I had to buy a a Radio Times because when you were a BBC staff or working there you've got a free Radio Times in the club and um, so I bought a Radio Times so that was an event and Sex and Violence wasn't there and that was the first I knew of it happening so I rang Terry Dudley and said, "What, what, 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 what's going on?" So he said, "Oh dear, what made me think I told you?" <laughs> well, you haven't. And apparently, what had happened was that they decided not to show it. Fortunately, Stuart Douglas was in the in the gallery with his mate. Drawing the name now, very famous. Um, and they watched the recording. Um, and he had a he had a weekly column in the Daily Mirror. Um, Walthouse. Keith oh, Walthouse. Keith, Waterhouse. Keith Waterhouse, Uh Who, who, Keith Walthouse and Willis Hall, I'd known as writers on the Saturday evening sat up in, mm-hmm. you know, And I remember, oh God, sorry, this is a, again a tangent. Um, when I was directing that for Ned, they were in California uh, writing in movies. And um, so they would ring to report what they were writing for us. And I would have to make light conversation with California until Ned could be found (laughs) (laughs) in Lime Grove and be brought to the office to actually speak to them in California. I remember making light conversation in California (laughs) with (laughs) Keith Woodhouse or Willis Hall. Anyway, um, and uh, he had seen the thing and, you know, and... The writer was up in arms, you know, cycled up to the television centre and said, What's going on? bang, bang, bang. Uh, and Keith Waterhouse wrote about it in, in the paper of the BBC had ticked out on, you know. Blah, 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 blah. So the BBC, oh, the B- first of all, they put out, a, uh, I, I was told, uh, a press release which said, uh, due to a substandard production, the current series of Doomwatch will be one short. Uh, so um, this this is all totally unknown to me. And um, uh, Stuart, you know, went up to the BBC and you know, banged on the door and talked to the head of plays or whatever. You know, I don't know who he talked to, frankly. Anyway, the BBC put out a, another press release which said, far from being uh, a substandard production, it was really rather a good production, but this subject cannot be dealt with in 50 minutes. And we're still not putting it out. <laughs> so all of this had gone on while we, in the month that we were away in, in France. So, it never went out. Years later, years later, I'm at a party for the script editor's birthday on Triangle in a pub in Clapham, I think it was, somewhere over there. And this very enormously fat person Said, are you Daryl Blake? I said, yeah. He said, I've got a lot of your work. So I said, oh. He said, you get yourself a big blank tape and come to my house. <laughs> so I took a friend, and I got a four-hour tape, and he had sex and violence, as well as several other do and and the Doctor Who, I think. Yeah. So exactly. so. Um, uh, but uh, you go into this perfectly ordinary sort of suburban house, and there are VT machines and goodness knows what vast amounts of technical gear, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, it meant that I had and still have um, uh, copies of those those Doonan watches, which at that stage you would never have, you no, know, no. including
0: sex and violence. Um, it's a very interesting piece. I think it's a very interesting piece of television. Oh, it is. It it's is. Great. I think it's a good piece of television. It makes you know. a very, very... It explores its issue very well, I think.
1: Yes, and of course we were recording it before the, the um, Longford Committee came out, you know, their, yeah. their, their judgement, as it were. Um, uh, and, and I think we decided the same thing, didn't we? Yeah, no the, action. No action.
0: That's the last line. Yes. No action. Yes.
1: Yeah. yes. Um, and, and uh, of course, John Paul... Um, I don't remember anybody else being query about it, but um, John's character, Quist, had to say something. About, I don't know why we're getting involved in this, I think, didn't he? Yeah. Somebody says that. I'm pretty sure it was John. And, of course, John was saying that as well, you know. <laughs> he he and his
0: character were saying, why are we doing this filth you know, sort of thing? <laughs> I feel very sorry for John Paul because I I rather like his performance in Doomwatch but I've I've seen all the sort of BBC memos that go flying about where no, none of the heads of department are particularly happy with him. Oh really? And I think oh. he's I think I like the I like all the cast of Doomwatch. I think it's uh, I think yes, it's a I, I, cast, Simon yeah Simon was a joy, of
1: course Simon you know. Oates. Yeah, brilliant. I was I was very funny, and and um, I remember we were going out to do you, you never when you organise transport for yourself or for people you know the production team. Didn't have cars. I, I've never driven. I never learnt to drive, so I, I had to be, you know, taken places. And um, but you never know what would turn up. Either you'd be put on the crew bus, you know, or a limousine would come, or <laughs> a perfectly ordinary car, you know, with a driver would, would come. On this occasion, it was a bloody limousine, you know, with with those with a sort of um, sheepskin rug in the back and all that sort of <laughs> thing. So uh, he and I were going out to this location in Surrey for one of the do marches. And um, I think it was the Indians. And um, so there we are, at the back of this limousine. uh, And he said, better than working, isn't it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when you move from all of this, because as you've mentioned, you did a lot of soap opera. And I guess when you do, I mean, the thing about something like Doctor Who is, you know, in that season that you did Doctor Who, your production looks very different from Michael Hayes's production. Looks very different from Pennant Roberts's productions. George yeah. Spencer Foster, because a director brought his own style to Doctor Who. Um, whereas with something like a soap, do you do you did you never did you ever feel I wish there was a way of shooting this that I could do that was less of a house style, or did you not feel it was a, a restrictive thing? No, more?
1: I think I think in in Doctor Who and in the soap anything. It depends what's on the page. It really depends on what's on the page. And what it says to me is uh, um, what you put on the screen, you know. I mean, uh, um, the Doctor Who stuff is rather more expansive than, say, a scene with Doc Cotton, you know, which is in a a small room. And I I was always concerned about, as an ex-designer... Not making Dot Cotton's front room look like the Albert Hall. Some directors managed to make you know those little suburban houses look like the Albert Hall. You know, I mean the they shoot with wide-angle lenses and, and standing back from the action instead of getting in there. You know, most of the producers will n- knock you on the head for doing that and say, "Get in there, get in there." You know, we want to see what's going on. But when I went to one week on on Coronation Street uh, in '77. I had all the sets, normally the sets are set up with splayed side walls so they can get, you know, cameras in at the side. I had them set up as they really were or as they really should be, you know. And so people were having to sort of crawl around furniture they'd never had to before (laughs) because there was only a mile between the chairs. When it's done like that, yeah, know? yeah, of course. And um, there, was some, there was some sort of sulky remarks from people.
0: Well, I realise how much of your time I've taken, so let me finish off and go and buy your lunch because um, you. But I will, I will touch upon a couple of things. I know we've talked about Quatermass before, but mm. I think the listeners might just like a couple of insights. So I'm going to prime you on because I know that in the last episode you had to go to an alien planet and Stephen Taylor um, yes. had to come up with a yes. solution.
1: Yes. Um, Yes, Stephen was a wonderful designer, as I said before. But but um, one of the things he did was to spend all his money on one or two sets. And, of course, every episode had about six or seven sets in it. And, uh, I mean, some were inherited from previous episodes. But um, in, I think, the final episode, the rocket goes to an alien planet. And um, it was up in the far corner of studio g in lime grove i remember and when we actually got into the studio and all the other sets were up there was there was there was nothing there except for a, a sky cloth around it and um i said what are we going to do about the the surface of the planet so he said well you see that those pile of tarpaulins there so i said yes So he said, well, if you go around the building and find all the nesting chairs you can, will you? So I I went and got, I don't know, about eight, ten dozen possibly nesting chairs, and he threw those around on the floor and threw the the tarpaulins over these nesting chairs, making hills and valleys and things. Of course, the, the, the show was still in black and white, and by God, did it look like a alien planet surface which of course i know intimately and (laughs) (laughs) and of course it worked you know i'm just trying to remember because peter alexander i think was his assistant i'm I'm a bit confused now as to whether when peter alexander was his assistant and when len wills was um len wills was absolutely rock solid draftsman who came from ealing film studios and uh into the bbc and um very nice man peter alexander was was um his, and then but he went to be head of design at scottish television in glasgow i remember peter um but i can remember working with both of them i mean because you know, i i had no perch in their office but i was i was a sort of you know the extra child, as it were. It it was entirely self-motivated, this attachment to Stephen. So um, both Len and Peter in their different times were were, were very kind to me. And uh, let me... I designed something. I designed a sort of weird box with veins on it, uh, which went into the rocket interior, I remember. Um, And that was my first contribution. The first thing I ever did, ever, 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 ever did, was a drawing... Richard Wilmot who was designing The Grove Family which was the first ever serial or soap opera uh, for BBC Uh, and I think it was I think it was in Studio H which is a tiny studio above reception in Lime Grove and my first drawing was a detail of the Grove Family's front door Um, with a full size detail of the architrave and everything Um, Mm -hmm. That was the first thing I ever did. It was. I've got a cop. I've got a print of it, of course, since I was the print room boy. <laughs> no, that's uh, a nice I did one for myself, of course. <laughs> of course.
0: Well, and of course, where we are geographically, which we won't give away, um, not that I'm sure you'll get Doctor two stalkers, but um, um, you must have seen Nigel Neal.
1: Yes, I met Nigel Neal at a party at Tony Sharp's, an actor I'd referred to earlier on the Do Much thing, and um, I said I was doing. Doomwatch at the time and um, wouldn't he like to write um, a black comedy for the Doomwatch team how how clever and sassy was I <laughs>
0: and he looked at me and he said for that cast goodness it's a funny streak he had isn't it I think he's a brilliant writer and a genius mm. but he, he does lots of stories about Nigel Neale. Seem to have this. He can't help himself but make a mm. sly comment. Well, about we all have standards, don't we? <laughs> uh,
1: what's your name, Toby? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I mean, uh, like uh, Doctor Who. When I, before I was on it, you know, I mean, it, it was it was really down market stuff. You know, in in the world of tele- BBC television mm. drama, you know, it wasn't a play. It wasn't even a series. It was a mere serial, you know. Well, he
0: was approached for Doctor Who and gave a similarly... i mm. ...response. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up and bring it up to date, tell me about The Tomorrow People because that's, that's a classic in its own. I, I watched that the other day.
1: I went to Thames in 72, I suppose, and um, I went, first of all, to take over from... It was all cast and designed... And the d- director fell over. I don't know what, what happened to him. I, don't I believe he was drunk or, or ill or what. I don't know. And I replaced somebody at short notice. And then I did, I don't know, about 700 rainbows. Um, I, I, I'd I be hired to do, I don't know, nine or something. And then I'd go and do a play or somewhere. And then I'd come back and do some more rainbows. And then a serial for, <coughs> pardon me, for, for, for Thames. And somewhere at the beginning of that, I was brought in to the head of department's office, Sue something or other, and, um, and there was Roger Price sitting there. And they outlined to me this new series, Cereal, for kids that they were doing called The Tomorrow People. And um, would I do it? And it sounded like the most awful rip-off of Doctor Who, um, whatever was going on in America at that time, and so I turned it down. And um, and a- another ex-designer took it on, actually. <laughs> um, and then I, I was doing other things. I was away and I was back again to um, uh, uh, Thames. Uh, and, and the second series, they got themselves organised, um, it wasn't as as um, cliche ridden as I thought it was. And they had a um, reasonable success with the first series, and um, so I agreed to do one. Was it? I don't remember, Was it a three or a four party? A four party. Yeah. Yeah. Four party. And then the first they started shooting the second series, and Michael something um broke his leg yeah he was famous michael standing michael standing uh, famous motorbiker uh broke his leg so i suggested my little friend chris Chattel tell <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he came in and and j- joined the company uh and then i i did it um uh it was a it was a, um it was a sort of time travel thing with with um um, mostly setting in England, in when the Romans were, uh, um, you know, in charge. And um, Stanley Libor's character was originally two characters who appeared in separate episodes. And I couldn't see the point of them not being connected. I, they were doing the same function in each of the episodes, and were the same. Um, sort of, you know, guest baddie, as it were. So I said, "Why can't this be the same character? Then it's it's a reasonable part to offer." <laughs> yeah. And um, he said, "Oh yes, oh yes." So th- it was amalgamated into one character, and and Stanley Leeble played it. What um, there was there was a mod- there was a modern scientist, and and.
0: Is that the Sylvia yeah. Coleridge? Sylvia Coleridge
1: and Brian Stanion yeah. um, were sort of the modern um, scientists, weren't they? Yeah. Brian Stanion was, a, again, a, a, a friend. Sylvia Coler. ah, yes. The first thing that I'd went to Thames to do was... Oh, God, it's gone again. But it was the, the actual story was called The Sisters Dead. Yeah, it's, it? a, it's Ace of Wands. Ace of Wands. That which was has a, also uh, got sorry. Sylvia Colley. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's how we first met, and and um, and then so I brought her back into um, uh, she's such a nice woman, a very clever actress. Um, and for some reason, I thought of her when I cast Beatrice Lehman later, but uh, perhaps she wasn't available, or she was ill, or something or other. So it went to B. Lehman.
0: She'd not that long previously done a Doctor Who as well, and I wonder ah, if that might have. Ah, ah. She'd done one in seventy six. Oh right, okay. Do. So maybe that was yeah, an issue. Yeah, could be, could be.
1: Um, and uh, what else? Um, what did we do? What did we do? Did we do it? Oh, is there, the filming was was in? Oh yes, we 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 did the filming in in down in Burnham Beaches, didn't we? Um, and I I picked the. Kids from photographs, you know, from the stage schools, because there was they were all sort of trainee gladiators, yeah <laughs> these children yeah. and um oh,
0: I'm going to try his name was peter Duncan from blue Peter? Oh, dear peter, peter that, yeah. that, that was
1: that, that was a that was a character in the in the studio, dear peter yes um, no I'm just, about these extras there's a there's a there's a young man well he's not young, he must be in his fifties now, if not more um who is a bit of a joke, but he—he's a presenter. Quite, not very tall, fair hair, chubby now. Uh, oh, appears in all sorts of actuality programmes, and he was married to that girl who presented Tomorrow, the Tomorrow's World. Oh, Keith Chagwin. Keith Chagwin. Well done. Um, and he was at a at a stage school at that time as a, as a child and um, it t- that turned out to have a twin brother, or a brother. And from the photographs, I picked them both. Keith Chegwin did not turn up, but the other one did, as far as I know. So somewhere in that, <laughs> in those Burner Beachy scenes, and perhaps even in the studio, is Chegwin's brother, or twin brother. And I'm not sure, I have a feeling they were twins at the time, but... Unless it was some sort of awful joke, and it, and there never was another brother, and it was it was him just not turning up. Right, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit confused, but I remember the 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 uh, the event, um, and Michael Deeks was in it. Oh yes, um, and he turned out to be a cousin of Barbara Windsor, because her real name is Deeks. Ah, and he asked to be let off early one day. I remember. Because he was going to audition for Rada, because he was I don't know sixteen or seventeen or something, and I never heard the the result whether he got whether he got in or not. So, if ever I meet Barbara winter, <laughs>
0: I should be saying whatever happened to your cousin Michael? <laughs> he was one of those actually, He did a lot of work in the seventies. Wait a minute. Yes, he was in. He a, was uh, Swift Nick and Dick Turpin with it. Richard O'Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. And did bits and bobs. The last yeah. I read of him was that he. Uh, Somebody said he'd gone back living with his mum and hadn't got a lot of work. Oh. I always feel sorry for because he had quite that boyish face, didn't he? Yeah. Actors who, who work a lot and, and a then lot they just don't. Curly hair. Yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, well, look, I'm going to take you for lunch and I've taken up far too much time. So bring us up to date. Um, what are you doing now? Because you're still active and a lot of the shows that you have been involved with are still on the telly. And what do you make of, of what you see now? Well,
1: um, since the last twenty years of my so-called career was in the soaps, um, I don't watch English soaps um, because I remember when they were good. Um, Anne <laughs> uh, uh, and I are, are devoted to Home and Away, which is the Australian one. Which which um, uh, that's okay because it's nothing to do with. We never worked on that one, so <laughs> uh, we don't we don't watch the soaps. Um, so I, I would, wouldn't pass judgment, really, on any of those. Um, life is totally, totally different now in television series drama. I mean, the 50 minute's that I used to do, Shadow of the Tower, Doomwatch, Paul Temple, um, uh, uh, Doomwatch, yes, and um, whatever else, uh, at that, that time, are now all on film, or, or as good as. I mean, they're not studio-bound. It's a totally different world. I mean, the Doctor Who, of course, is, is, since its rebirth, uh, has had money thrown at it, its own home in Cardiff, as it were. Um, And it's just absolutely, totally different from, from, um, you know, the sort of three-hapenny days of 1978. (laughs) Since I retired, I've been doing... Uh, Mostly local shows, which um, I took over the... Well, we started... uh, 87, I suppose it was, 86, 87. We started a youth theatre here in Barnes and um, a wonderful man called Cooks Gordon, who was production manager at The National with Olivier, uh, an actress called Anne Carroll and her son, uh, Rusty, we ran this uh, youth theatre, which... 300, 400 at least have passed through in the twenty years that we ran it um, so quite a few of them gone into the business and become uh, professional actors um, what's the what's the name of the actor who's in the, the the twilight things Robert pattinson Robert Pattinson was one of them he he was in our he lives in Barnes, or lived. Um, he came through the show, did, did three or four shows for us. Uh, that was when I'd stopped directing and Rusty had taken over. Rusty and Anne were directing. Um, but I costumed him. Uh, several others... Um, uh, there was another boy who was in the first Harry Potter. Uh, uh, what, something... Oh, I've forgotten his name, sorry. Several girls gone into the business. Uh, uh, so there, And then... Um, in eighty nine ninety, an adult company started locally, um, the charity players. Because we we, the anything that was over from after the costs went to local charities. So it was the charity players, uh, and the first five years of that, no, sorry, they started just doing pantomimes, and I helped them out initially. Because I was directing, standers when we started the pantomimes, so I got secretly. Um, four bags of glittering costumes from BBC Wardrobe for, for the first Aladdin. And the first Aladdin looked wonderful. <laughs> then I let them get on with it, and I sort of took over at the Millennium. Uh, and I directed everything and designed everything for about five years and fell exhausted. Um, and by then I'd retired. Oh, two I retired. Um, and then I had a sort of year or 18 months off, and then I came back because... There came a point about 18 months of, into the um, rest period that I didn't know who I was. Because I realised that I'd been doing going from show to show to show to show for 50 years, first as an amateur, then as a professional, and then as an amateur again. So I really didn't sort have any sort of persona uh, unless I was doing a show. So I went back and I designed Cinderella initially and then took over as director again. And... Uh, I'm now, um, I don't have the energy to direct and design and run around and do everything, clean the loos and all the rest of it you have to do when you're an amdram. So what I'm doing at the moment is providing costumes with a a dear lady called Penny Bayliss for an enormous production of Jesus Christ Superstar in the parish church um, in a week's time. And Tim Rice happens to be a neighbour... Six Doors that way. Annika Rice, Six Doors that way. But there's no connection, as far as I know. Um, And he's coming to talk to to us all uh, before the Friday performance, as I understand it. So that's sold out. Um, And no doubt I will go on doing show after show as long as I can actually stand up or walk.
0: Well, (laughs) and thank you for giving your time, which you've very kindly donated a lot of. So we asked the listeners... To donate to a charity of your choice. Um, what about the Actors Benevolent Fund? That sounds like it's rather feathering my own nest, but that's fine. <laughs> um, and Do- this this podcast was started because Doctor Who was 50 years old when I started doing it and has acquired many fans over the world, some of whom listen to this. What is your message, Daryl, to the Doctor Who fans out there?
1: Well, you don't know how lucky you are. Um, the... the the show that's actually produced now is a million dollars compared to what we used to do in the, in the back in the days of the 60s and 70s. So uh, stick with it, folks.
0: Well, Daryl Blake, for your time and your brilliant memories, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's great. Thanks to Daryl. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. His charity is the Actors Benevolent Fund, which is www.actorsbenevolentfund, all one word, .co.uk. Any donations, more than gratefully received, obviously, especially at this festive time. There'll be another one of these next week. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Hadoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. And uh, until the next time you hear my voice, uh, enjoy yourselves. Bye.
1: Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who Stay up there. Magnificent, sir. The most splendid club building in all St. James's. The Contingency Club. Do forgive the intrusion, Mr. Peabody. What is it, Edward? Strangers, sir. Strangers? They appeared in the club. Edward! Yes, sir. Is there something you require? Holy moly! There are three of them! My father was one of the principal engineers. He has disappeared. He's vanished. And I believe it must be connected to the Contingency Club. Edward? Yes? Yes. You're all called Edward. Yes. Yes. Oh, my Queen, an excellent move.
0: Oh, do not grovel, Peabody. Any game is joyless unless played at full pelt between two earnest rivals. Of course, my Queen. What is it? There's something here. Bubbling. Liquid of some kind. And do you smell something?
1: You have attained full membership of London's Premier gentlemen's Society. You are most welcome, sir,
0: to the Contingency Club. What do you intend to do? Our instructions are quite clear, sir. You must be ejected from the club. Ejected? You mean through the window? But we're three floors up. You'll kill us! We'll break our necks on the pavements of (laughs) Pall (laughs) Malls! Doctor, what's happening? We're falling. Is that possible? It should be. Nothing must interfere with the game, Peabody. Nothing.
1: Big finish. We love stories.